We're in the fifth week of our series on lamenting. We've been going through the Psalms of lament. This has been one of the significant markers in some of the testimonies I'm hearing and just how God's Spirit is working. It's from people thinking deeply and significantly about areas of their life that they're lamenting, that are out of step with God, or areas where God has worked in their life through very difficult situations that have been mournful, and yet they've seen the hand of God in those in a fresh way currently. I'm, I'm discovering that as we think about lamenting, it's beginning to invade other areas of my life. So, like when you buy a certain car, you realize how many other folks have that car? You ever had that experience? I'm finding that happening to me about lamenting. I'm finding it, it's creeping in other areas. Like I find that even I've realized there have been times I've had marital lamenting. And I'm not being completely humorous here, though parts of it are, not to worry. Julie and I are in great shape. But we've had moments, wouldn't you agree, where you're in a place of joy and then there seems to be a, a division, a distraction, a disappointment, a hurt, whether intentional or unintentional, someone says something or does something and, and you, you find yourself without the joy you once had. And much of my marital stress sometimes comes from losing a game of euchre or rum and cube or sequence, to be honest with you, right? That's when I say things I wish I hadn't have said. There's the humorous part. In all seriousness, um, I was sharing with Julie, just sometimes I've, I've lamented like, man, our marriage is not where I want it to be yet. And so we look back at the vows we took in 1988 and we're like, you know what? That's what we promised each other. And then we anticipate what God will still do. And it kind of pulls us out of that lamenting, minimal joy season. Let me show you. I kind of drew this out in a graph, kind of in a, in a diagram. It's really just really uh, raw, Okay. But just in my notes this week, I was thinking, what would this look like? I think it's this kind of lamenting in marriage and maybe other parts of life where you have a, a moan of joy and you go into this gap where joy seems minimal. And there's reasons for it, but you're, you're not content to stay there. So you, you look ahead. So I've, I've discovered that really in our marriage, when there are seasons where the joy seems less, like I've done something or she's said something or we just hit a funk, you know? that remembering what we promised and then anticipating what God will do has helped us kind of navigate this chasm, this gap. And I thought more about that, and I was reading Psalm 126. I realized I think that's really the journey that happens in lamenting in general. We, we experience in lament a gap of joy, a chasm that seems like something's not right. We look back to when it was right, and we get hope, and we then look forward to what will be right, and we move forward. And that's really the backdrop, kind of the framework for Psalm 126. And I begin to realize, oh, the Bible speaks into every part of my life. So your Bibles are there, right? Notice how this type of framework really is structured and seen in Psalm 126, would you? I'll go ahead and show you a couple things about this text in our lab this morning that will help bring it into focus even more clearly. 
Uh, the first three verses, just make some notes of this in your Bible, in your journal. The first three verses really are past tense verses. We'll explain what they are and why they're past tense. You'll see that the last three verses really are future tense. And then you'll find that right in the middle, there's going to be this gap. And we'll explain what that is as well. This would mirror kind of like what we experience in other areas of our life. When we are lamenting, whether it's in, in this area or that area, whether we brought it on or whether we're simply experiencing it, enduring it, this psalm helps us understand how we navigate this chasm, this gap, this time of, of minimal joy, we'll say. So let me read the psalm for us. We'll explain this. We'll get under its weight, and I think you'll, again, sense the Holy Spirit stirring and moving in our hearts. I love the word. I hope you do as well. It's the word that does the work, and I just want to tell you this. I, I love preaching to you people, and I don't know if it's to you or at you or with you or for you. All I know is I love getting under the weight of the word with you. You guys just uh, are just super listeners and Wonderful sheep. So can we do it again this week? Can we let God's word just weigh on us a little bit? Here's verse one. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, notice the word restores in the past tense. Gives you a clue. We're in the past. He's speaking about something that happened in the former days. He says, when that occurred, when God did that, when Yahweh restored the fortunes, or some translations say the captives, could refer to people, but I think fortunes is a good translation because when people were brought back to the city, it's the people who actually worked the land, built the temple, restored the city. They were the ones who actually had the relationship with God to see the city thrive and flourish and succeed. So this is a good translation. Fortunes, captives, they're all really tied into the same idea that when God did this work in Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then. Notice the verb words, past tense. The idea of then is past tense. At that point, in those days, our tongues were filled with shouts of joy. There's the first time joy is mentioned. It's mentioned four times in this brief chapter. They were so joyful that the nations must have heard about it because they said the Lord has done great things for them and they personalized that and said, no, we're not content to hear this great news from you. We will own it. Look at verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. A past tense verb indicating the author is looking at something that occurred and said, when, when that was going on, man, it was a sweet time. He talks about it like a dream. Now, some of you don't have dreams that would be a metaphor for happiness. You wake up confused. You don't know what they're about, and you're like, that was weird, okay? But some people have dreams that wake up like, man, that was the sweetest time. He's using the word dream here to refer to this time of profound happiness, deep contentment, laughter, joy, good news uh, in the neighboring nations. And then he moves to the present tense to request something for the future. Look at verse four now. He's remembering something and you can sense his heart is longing for that again. So he says, restore our fortunes, Lord. He repeats verse one in some way, but without the past tense. You see that? Restore our fortunes, Lord. Do again what you once did. 
And then he begins to give some metaphors for what he desires to see God do, like water courses in the Negev. It's the part of Israel that's between the north and the south. We'd call it transitional land. It would receive the rains, but it would usually have uh, pretty hard ground. But when those rains would come and it would flood down from the north, this would be like a, a watering moment. And suddenly vegetation would begin to grow. And if farmers had prepared the soil for these rains, then they would see even more growth. He's saying, Lord, do for us what the rain does for the dry parched ground. And then he gives another metaphor. He says, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Notice the third use of joy there. The first two were back in the first half. He said, though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of, say it with me, church, joy, carrying his sheaves. Maybe you're wondering, why is the sower sad? Twice tears are mentioned here. It's not because he's sad uh, that he's in a tough time. He's, these are what I call tears of joy as well. He's looking back, remembering what God did. And he's confident God will do it again. So it's like these, these tears of like, man, the best is yet to come. And so he sows, confident and joyful, God will do it again. And so you have three verses about the past, three verses about the future. What do they tell us about lamenting? And what is this gap in the middle that, that seems to kind of indicate to us there's this gap of joy? Something was good then, something's gonna be good again, let me first of all explain to you what this gap is, and, and I think it'll help you, the psalm make a lot of sense. This gap is best explained in Haggai chapter 1. Can I just put Haggai chapter 1? You know what that means. I would read it because it explains a time in Israel's history when they had been brought back to the land. That's what verse 1 says. When the Lord restored the captives or the fortunes of Zion. In other words... They were in Babylon for about 70 years as punishment for their idolatry, specifically for rejecting and refusing to keep the Sabbath. So God put them into captivity, into exile for 70 years. At the end of those, Cyrus, around 535-ish, 537-ish, told them to go back to their land. And Nehemiah and Ezra began to rebuild the walls of the of the city, they reinstalled worship, they rebuilt the temple. It was a great day. They were back in their land. God was at work again. This is, this is the moment that he's talking about in verses one through three when their mouths were filled with laughter. It was like a dream. The nation says, God's done great things for you. But something happened as they were back in the land, rebuilding the temple, reconstructing the walls, reinstalling worship of Yahweh. Something happened, and Haggai 1 tells us that they became preoccupied with their own agenda and not God's. Most specifically, they started attending their own homes as far as building them and, and reconstructing. They became more attuned to their own home instead of God's house. And so the temple sat unfinished, uncompleted, and in many ways unattended for years after they got back in the land. This is the gap he's speaking of. They're in the land, but it's a dry spell once again. And if you know Israel's history, would you agree with me? It's a roller coaster ride. Now, before you judge too quickly, look in the mirror. 
We do that as well, don't we? It's a roller coaster ride. He's simply painting a picture of that. Like, man, you were punished for your disobedience, then God brought you back. It was like a dream, and then you fell away again and got distracted and detoured. Now we want God, watch this, verses 4 through 6, we want God, while even though we're in the land, to do that again for us. We want the rain of God's work to, to moisten our dry, barren land. So that gives you some idea of the context of verses 1 through 3, what he's talking about, their return to the land and the revival they experienced, then their distraction and this gap when they kind of begin to experience less joy, minimal joy, something's wrong, we're, we're, we're distracted again, we're not obedient, but then this cry, this longing for God to do his work yet again in their midst. So in light of that, let me give you four words that I think will help even bring even more clarity to these two sections. When you think about verses one through three, I want you to think about these two words, forgiveness remembered. Will you say them with me? Forgiveness remembered. This is what's occurring in verses one through three. The author's remembering when God restored them to the land and visibly manifested his forgiveness of them. They had been 70 years in captivity. God worked in a pagan king's heart to allow their release. They go back to the land. The walls of the city are being rebuilt. The, the temple's being reconstructed. Worship's being reinstalled. It's like it used to be. And he remembers this. And he remembers the way God displayed his forgiveness of them. He's very thankful. And yet he's using past tense verbs to show us that though that's what they experienced, that's not where they were at the time. They had grown distracted and detoured. This shows me something, church. Can you hear this well? That even when we are in a good place, we can grow tired. We can get distracted. We can live selfishly. And though we may, I'll use Israel for example, though they were, uh, their residency was in the land, their relationship was once again cold and distant. Ever felt that way? Do you find yourself there today? Your hobbies have become more important than your holiness. Your priorities trump God's purposes. Maybe you're sensing a distance from God that was created by your very own disobedience. Or maybe it was by a difficult situation that just seemed to turn you. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Some of you here this morning, you know this is true mentally, but what you're now feeling is a lamenting of this emotionally and spiritually. And I want to say that's a great sign. When you feel the weight of your dry and barren soul and you want to do something about it. What's the first thing you can do in that moment? <clears throat> I think, based on this text, is to remember the days when God forgave you. That's what they're doing here. They're remembering forgiveness. And here's why that's so important, because forgiveness remembered 
It refuels and refreshes. It reminds you of the joy you once had and how God does wish to restore that to you. In fact, can we personalize this for a moment? Think back with me, would you, to a moment in your life when God's forgiveness was pervasive, evident, memorable. Like it, it, you, you, You'll always think about this or that moment when you think about forgiveness. Bring that up in your mind for a moment. It may be the moment God saved you and that initial forgiveness that represented reconciliation to God and he brings you into his family. It could be that moment. It may be a moment afterwards, perhaps, what we'd call a forgiveness aimed towards fellowship, like restoring fellowship. You'd been disobedient, but God in his graciousness disciplined you and brought you back. Maybe it's that moment. I think either works to remember forgiveness and it brings a spiritual smile to your face. You think about the goodness and graciousness, graciousness of God in your life. As I was just even thinking through this text and how we can teach this and together get up under it, I thought back to the day God saved me. I was a 13-year-old, red-headed boy in junior high school. Growing up in a really good home, in a really good church, I was very active. I thought I was a Christian because I was a good kid. And so I was attaching labels and badges and I was going to make sure that I was good enough to earn God's favor. And in that moment, sitting on the second row of this auditorium called Phillips Chapel, I can't describe how it happened because it's supernatural. All I can tell you is in that moment, I realized as this man was preaching that all the things I was trying to accomplish and attach and do would never amount to anything. God's Spirit convicted me deeply and greatly and said, if you stand before me with only those things you'll go to hell. I said, I don't want to go to hell. God said, then trust my work for you through Jesus on the cross as the only way to be saved. And I know we can say that's a gospel presentation, but here's what I actually believe more fundamentally. The gospel's not a presentation. The gospel's a supernatural operation. And then in that moment, God regenerated my heart. He brought me from death to life. His grace was so irresistible. I remember leaving that second row and, and almost making a, a, a half walk, half run to the front. In those days and in that environment, we had invitations. And if you wanted to express your decision, you'd go to the front. I didn't care who was watching. The room was full of uh, my high school. So hundreds of kids. I didn't think twice about them. I was like, I'm lost. God loves me only through Jesus can I be saved. And I just made a beeline for my high school principal, and I said, I need to be saved this morning. And we read through the gospel. I was in tears, and I just asked God to save me, and he did. I was so overjoyed that when I stood up, the first person I thought of was my older sister for some reason. I left that building and ran to her and gave her a big hug. Like not too many eighth grade boys are hugging their 11th grade sisters, all right? But something happened to me. Here's what it was. God forgave me of my sin. And I can't explain all about that and why I reacted and how I, so, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I can tell you theologically what happened, but physically, like what makes an eighth grade boy do those things other than the Holy Spirit of God regenerates his heart 
and says, today you're no longer a slave, you're a son. Today you're not an enemy, you're an ally, you're a friend of God. And when I think back upon that day and how I was trying so hard to be good and was freed from that to like, man, I'm just going to enjoy being a child of God for all that God has done in my life since. Starting on that day, I am overwhelmed with joy. And it does prompt me to want to leave the valley of lamenting at the right time because God isn't finished yet. It, it, remembering refuels and refreshes. What's your moment? What have you thought of while I was just simply, simply sharing my story? Maybe you're here and you're thinking, Todd, I don't have a moment of forgiveness. I can't go back to a, a season in which I experienced God's unexplainable work in my life. Maybe you're like me. You were trying to earn your way. You're trying to attach labels and good works and deeds and accomplishments so that you could prove to God you deserve to get in. But there's only one way into the family of God, and that's through the Son, Jesus. And believing in Him is the only way anyone is ever born again. You see, that's why this morning is good news for you, because if you have no moment of forgiveness to recollect, today could be your day. I would just urge you pastorally to do what I did at 13. Just right there where you are. Ask God to save you through Jesus. Repent of trusting your own works, ideas, accomplishments, and say, God, if I don't have you, I don't have eternal life. So God, through Jesus, will you give me eternal life? Jesus lived and died and was raised again so that you could be forgiven. And all it takes is simply asking God to forgive you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God will do that. And today, and I mean this in every good sense of the word, today will be the most remembered and joyful day of your life. Does that mean it's always going to be easy, comfortable? But it will definitely be worthwhile because your eternal destiny will be set. My prayer is that today for somebody in this room, multiple people in this room, this will be the day you mark your forgiveness and remember it forever. Look with me at the last three verses, can we? In the first three, he remembers forgiveness. In this second set of verses, just jot these two words down. Two words down. Fruitfulness anticipated. Say it with me. Fruitfulness anticipated. Here the psalmist is expressing in a very dramatic fashion his desire for God's blessing. I mean, you see it really uh, in this idea of the water courses in the Negev. He wants the rain of God's blessing, the refreshing work of God's spirit. He, he uses a, a flood type of metaphor first when the water would come from the north and just flood the dry ground, but then he kind of moves to a fruit or crop metaphor. And I don't know if this is intended, so I want to be careful here. Here's an opinion on one way these verses can be seen. You notice he, he in, the, in verse 4, it does seem, I'm going to put this... Um, I'm going to put I-M-M for immediate. It's like, man, when it rains and the water rushes down over the dry ground, you can tell there's a torrent. Like there's a flood happening. God, send us your work like that. 
But four and, excuse me, five and six seem to be what I might call eventual. In other words, he says there is also this work of God where you sow in tears and then you wait. And then over time, a crop grows. But rest assured, you will reap if you just keep on sowing. Do you kind of see the difference? And I'm not sure if that's the main intention of the author. He may just be saying, God, we want your work. Flood us with it. I sense he may be saying this as well. God, we want your work. However it comes, like a flood immediately or like fruit eventually. Just let us see your harvest, your work. Whether it's a downpour or a drizzle, a torrent or a trickle, his heart is God. We want to see you work. This is what he's aiming for. Pull us out of our distractions, our detours, our complacency. Watch this, church. Our disobedience and put us back into the place of obedience where we see your blessing. It's fruitfulness anticipated. And by the way, about this fruitfulness, just two other notes on the text here I want you to see. It is a joyful harvest. It's a joyful work. Do you see the word joy twice? But also, it is a promised work. See the word surely there? So when he speaks of this harvest, this work of God, this flood, this fruit, he's saying God will surely do it and it will bring joy to you. So you're kind of back on the, the plane of joy. So do you see how the psalmist here navigates this gap, this chasm? There was a time we were joyful, but something happened and we became distracted, disobedient. A number of things could have occurred, but we were detoured. Joy was minimal. We were in a gap, but Lord, we know you can do it again. We anticipate it. We're going to sow and we're confident you'll bless again. That's really the, the kind of the landscape of this psalm. Now, let's personalize this as well. And I'll say more on Extra Point Podcast Tuesday, but I want you to hear me well as your pastor here. Do not turn me off. Challenge yourself on this because the tendency here is to kind of call this legalism. But I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast Tuesday. I'll explain this in more depth. I just want to touch on it here because I want to whet your appetite and I want to make some strong theological assertions that I think will help us as a church. In this psalm, I think that sowing is the metaphor for obedience and that reaping is the metaphor for blessing. Now, I'll tell you why on the podcast. Here's just a snippet of my reasoning. This psalm is highly connected to the Mosaic Covenant, a conditional covenant, which included the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28. So more on the podcast. Just know this. Part of God's promise to his people was that when they obeyed and followed his law, he would actually send the rain to make sure their crops were growing. It's an agricultural economy to make sure they could eat. If you read Haggai 1, which describes the gap between these two sections, he actually says, if you continue to pay attention to your own houses and reject my commandment, I'll stop the rains. So when the author here is saying, God, we will go forth sowing, confident you will bless us with reaping, he's saying, Lord, we're going to obey you. 
We want the revival that you bring to us as your people. We want you to restore those fortunes. And when you see fortunes, don't think money. This is far more than a monetary statement. In fact, I would say it's a relational statement. They're saying, God, we want to be in right relationship with you. We're back in the land. That's our residency. And now we want to be right relationally so that you will bless us. And it's far more than stuff. It's like, it's like if you're the child of a, a father and you're not getting along, you're not just wanting to get along with your dad because he can you know, pay your car insurance or you can eat that night or he won't charge you rent. You want to be right with your dad because there's a, re, there's, a, there's a certain kind of blessing that goes with that relationship that's far greater than the tangible things that help you feel it or experience it. You want to be right relationally. And this is really what's going on here. And they're saying, God, we want to be right with you. Restore us so that as we go forth and obey, you will bless us. Church, hear this. Often we want God's blessing, but we are not willing to obey what he says. That equation does not work. Obedience brings blessing. Let me give you some examples of how we have misconstrued this and how we have wrong expectations. And often we point our finger at God when really we should look in the mirror and say, it's my disobedience. We love to lay claim to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will meet all your needs based on his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so we want God to meet our financial needs. But yet, we don't give sacrificially, which is the context of Philippians 4. Instead, we spend selfishly. And then we wonder why God doesn't meet our needs. We say we want community, i.e. friends. We want to connect, but we never go to a small group. We never reach out to anyone in the cafe. We never make a phone call to initiate a friendship. We just kind of sit in a passive way and wait for everything to come to us. And when it doesn't, we point at God and say, I don't have any community. And we've not taken one step to obey what Solomon said, that a man that has friends must show himself friendly. We say we want to know God really deeply, who he is and his character. And yet the sad reality is often we're quicker to binge Netflix than read the Bible. We're quicker to watch three episodes on Prime Video than sign up for a class or a study. But then we'll complain again the next month. Lord, I just don't know you. Ouch. But I'm pastorally urging you to consider this psalm from the, through the lens of the children of Israel in that context when God promised, I'll bless you, but there's an obedience within this Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant that I'm expecting. And even as God's new covenant people, he does call for obedience to his commands. And that's when our relationship then is in the, uh, the most joyful, in the fullest context. So if you're in this gap of minimal joy, 
what you should be lamenting, if it's brought about by your disobedience, what you should be lamenting is your disobedience to what God has asked of you. And realize this, until you are willing to change how you sow, don't expect to reap a different crop. Now, this idea of anticipating fruitfulness, i.e., a willingness to obey, in regards to lamenting, this is a very important aspect. Because if we don't anticipate future fruitfulness, lament whatever it was that caused us to get distracted, detoured, disobedient, then sometimes we think, well, I'm in this gap, I'm in this gully, I'll be here forever, and we never cross the chasm, leave lamenting, we never journey back to joy. We, we feel like, well, this is where I'm stuck. You ever felt like that? A sin, a bad decision, a sickness, a hurt, it seemed to change the trajectory of your life spiritually. And so you think that's all you'll ever know now. You think that's the final act, but it isn't. Psalm 126 tells us that's not where you have to stay. God can and will do a new thing. So move from remembering forgiveness to anticipating fruitfulness. How? By obeying what God is saying now. Ask him for his blessing, his hand of power, his manifest presence by prioritizing obedience and watch God once again send showers of blessing, whether as a downpour or a drizzle, whether as a torrent or a trickle. Just be thankful God is working again. Long for all that he has yet to do in us, with us, and through us. Well, those are the six verses. Hopefully you've heard them here. We're applying them here. Can I summarize them so we can kind of tuck them in our pocket, take it with us all week? Here's a simple sentence that I think would kind of summarize the chapter, maybe even give us some action points to look at. Here's our take-home truth for today. It's pretty simple. I'll just repeat what I've been saying for 30 minutes, in fact. That remembering forgiveness and anticipating fruitfulness is how God restores the lamenter's joy. So you should leave with at least two actions. You can talk about in your small group. You can talk about over dinner. You can think about how you're going to implement them. But if you're in this gap, if you're in this place of minimal joy, this time where the land of your soul seems drier than usual, Barren. Remember forgiveness, what God has done, so that it refreshes and refuels you, and then anticipate fruitfulness so that it refocuses you, refocuses you towards obedience. And what you'll do is you'll find yourself coming out of that lamenting gap into a place of fuller joy. So would you read this with me, church, together? Here we go. Remembering forgiveness and anticipating fruitfulness is how God restores the lamenter's joy. Somewhere between Blairsville, Georgia, and Cleveland, Georgia, there's a stretch of highway. It's pretty treacherous. We call it the river road, but it's in what's known as Neal's Gap. 
It's a valley between two pseudo-mountains, we'll call them. I remember the first time I drove the river road. I drove through Neal's Gap. We were coming back from seeing relatives in Georgia. We lived in Chattanooga. There were other ways to go, but for some reason, this is the way we took because it was the shortest way. And on this occasion, I was probably 10th grade-ish, just been driving. We leave the relative's home. My dad tosses me the keys. He says, you're driving home tonight. I was a tad nervous but excited. My mom about had a stroke. (laughs) My dad looked at my mom and said, this is how he learns. He gets in the front seat with me. My mom gets in the back, nervous. And the very moment we entered Neil's Gap, I'm pretty sure my mother lost her joy. (laughs) But with every mile that we would go, she'd look back and she would think, we haven't crashed yet. I remember what it was like before I got in this back seat. It can be that way again. And then she'd look ahead and she'd see that the road isn't as long as it used to be. In fact, she'd say, I think I can almost see the interstate. (laughs) With every mile that I drove on that river road in the middle of Neal's Gap, my mom remembered and anticipated And her lamenting eventually subsided and her joy gradually returned. Now, I use the illustration somewhat facetiously and a little bit hyperbically. But I think you get the point. Whether we're speaking of marital lamenting, which I introduced the sermon with, or what I call vehicular lamenting, maybe directional lamenting, Remember, it invades all parts of our life at times. Whenever we see that there's, there's a gap in my life, my joy is minimal, something's not right, we need to analyze, why is it not right? Is it because of the devil's attacks? Is it because of a disobedience on my part? Maybe it's a division in a close relationship, the death of a spouse or child. Perhaps it's a diagnosis you weren't expecting. It could be a number of things, but some reason, something's caused a gap in your joy. When that happens, look back and remember forgiveness. Look forward and anticipate fruitfulness, and you will find that lamenting will serve its purpose. It won't be forever um, holding you down, but it will be a, a temporary journey from one cliff of joy to the next. And as you remember and anticipate, God will restore the joy of your salvation. You will watch your mourning turn to dancing because of God's past work and promised future work. What do you say we keep journeying to joy?